Welcome to the Public Morality. Last week will forever be remembered in the annals of American history. Within 48 hours, Georgia, who had been traditionally a red state, followed up on the heels of the election victory for President-elect Joe Biden by sending Raphael Warnock and John Osloff to the United States Senate, thereby giving Democrats a majority. The next day, what has traditionally been a ceremonial exercise, 12 Senate Republicans vowed to oppose the certification of Biden's Electoral College win. Then, the unthinkable occurred. With a cabal of Republican senators prepared to challenge the certification of Biden, America's 227-year tradition of a peaceful transfer of power abruptly came to an end. With the final push from the President of the United States, rioters stormed the Capitol, planted a noose outside, some brandishing the flag of the Confederacy. Members of Congress were ushered to safe locations, and Capitol Police could be seen with their guns drawn, barricaded inside congressional chambers. A morbid response to derail a free and fair election. And then the following day, President Trump, in a two-minute speech, appeared to finally concede the election to Joe Biden. To discuss an incredible 48 hours in American political history, I'm joined once again by political commentator and professor Joe Tooman. Joe Tooman, welcome back to The Public Morality. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Good to talk to you again. Uh, has our democracy ever experienced... Uh, a 48 hours similar to the past week? Man, I, uh, outside of uh, you know the era of the Civil War, uh, I can't think of anything that, that rivals what happened this week. I think this is unique. And, and uh, I mean, we've certainly had uh, threats for our country that we could compare this to, I suppose. But we have never had, in, in, to my knowledge and memory, uh, an active insurrection that was incited by a sitting president um, based upon that president's unwillingness to accept an election result and perpetuation of what everyone around him knew was a lie. I mean, it's, it, this has just been pathological and, and bizarre. Uh, and certainly to answer your question, therefore, uh, completely unique. I, I, I can't remember any time in history like this. It's just, it's awful. You, you know, uh, and I want let's just start with how the how, how the week began um, when I when we first contacted you. What I thought we would be spending most of our time discussing, but I remember in September, October, political pundits was, was were suggesting that the pathway to the Democrats getting a majority in the Senate ran through Maine, ran through North Carolina. I don't know of anyone that said that it depended on Georgia flipping both seats. And, yeah. And, I, and uh, talk about the importance, if you will, of that election. Well, it, it, we'll start with the November election, obviously, which is the one in, in question as far as the president was concerned. Um, Georgia has been historically a red state, a conservative Republican uh, vanguard. But, you know, states go through uh, periods of, of transition politically um, it, it's not uncommon at all because you have uh, different migrations of new populations that show up in those states when the states engage in a, 
uh, invest in development to bring in new colleges or universities. You attract new populations of people when, when there are job opportunities there or cost of living or housing is better, people move. And so over time, uh, I think in ways that were perhaps more subtle, unless you live there, Georgia went from being a red state to potentially being what we would call sort of a purple state, meaning something in between uh, conservative and, and, and or liberal. And uh, it was, I think, a place in that sense that was not only ripe for new Democrats and registered Democrats and, and formally non-participating black voters, you know, who had not been solicited, who had not been encouraged to register before, who also had to face, let's be honest, uh, massive voter suppression efforts, not just in, in, in the state of Georgia, but in other parts of the South. Um, things changed. And and uh, uh, I think that Stacey Abrams had a lot to do with uh, making sure that those people were registered to vote. The other uh, inclination I have about this is, besides uh, the, the emergence of a very strong black vote, which I think was responsible for giving Mr. Biden the win in the end, you also have to factor in independent voters who are sick of both parties, Republican and Democrat, um, and uh, I haven't seen uh, the, the final numbers for both Senate seats, but I can tell you I did see them on independence for one of the two Senate seats, which is Mr. Warnicke's seat, um, that, that he got more than 50 percent of independent votes uh, in, this, in this last election, which is part of the reason he was able to beat uh, uh, the, other, the other candidate in this race. I suspect the same was true for Joe Biden. Um, in November, that uh, independent voters also played a role in this. And and what that teaches us, I think, in the end, is that uh, both of these parties, Democrat and Republican, are aging. Uh, they're going to have to reconsider what their identity is and what they're about. Um, and and uh, usually political parties reflect um, the breadth and the diversity of their, of their members. And uh, I think both parties uh, in, in the state of Georgia are, are going to go through transition. And I actually think that's something we're going to see nationally as we go forward. And, and, and as a result of, um, uh, especially on the, on the independent piece, what I'm hearing you say, in, in many ways, just sort of the, given the bifurcation of the two parties, it really makes independent voters the de facto kingmaker in a lot of statewide races across the country, is what I'm hearing you say. Absolutely. And and let me also say on, on the Democratic side, you know, there is a strong progressive group uh, within and, and there are also African-American voters, black voters who, you know, have been uh, solicited by the Democratic Party in the past, but who's all, you know, sometimes feel as if, um, you know, the party wants them when it's time to vote. And otherwise, the party is not always putting their issues at, at, the, you know, at the top of the agenda. Where's the follow through? When you have so many young black males being killed, uh, uh, murdered, let's just call it what it is, by police officers using excessive force or inappropriate force in these situations, um, where is the legislation that, that changes that? Where, where are the political Democratic leaders elected who are going to challenge very strong police officers' unions or sheriff's unions in this, in this country and demand a you know, transition? Lots of states, for example, have gone to uh, encouraging the use of uh, those on-person cameras that the that the uh, police officers are supposed to wear, and they do. And what a coincidence! Those cameras seem to have been turned off just at the moment a young black male is being shot, consistently, so that that evidence doesn't exist. I mean, well, black people aren't stupid; they understand what's going on. And 
so back to this point about for the Democratic Party, I mean, they have to, they should be as concerned about the, the changing of the times and the emergence of a, of a very strong, uh, particularly in the South, uh, black voting pool, uh, African-American voting pool, um, that, that these people aren't just going to give their votes away. They're going to demand changes as well. And those changes will force changes in the Democratic Party in the same way that the Republican Party is going to have to do a major overhaul as well. I mean, the Republican Party is more screwed up than the Democratic Party, and that's saying something uh, um, majorly screwed up. Uh, and, 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 and as far as so we're still staying with the Georgia Senate race, what impact did the president have on that race in your view? A huge impact, I think. Um, first, remember that there was the residue of the November election um, in a state that people thought would stay red. It went blue. It went to the Democrats. And, uh, you know, I think in the state of Georgia, a lot of people um, weren't just voting for Joe Biden. They were voting against Donald Trump in, in that sense as well. And uh, so that was the first impact. But if we're talking about like in the last weeks of the Senate race, the runoff race, the major impact was this last trip that Trump made uh, to, to Georgia in one of the counties that was considered to be a Republican stronghold and one that he thought he could win again. He had won it before in 2016. And uh, you know, if you happen to watch you know, the video of this, he got up and he spoke you know, for quite a while. And he spent maybe two minutes talking about these two Republican Senate candidates. And the rest of the time, what a surprise, he spent it all talking about himself and his grievances about losing or having a, a, an election stolen from him. Stop the theft, stop the steal, you know. And, and uh, you know, if you were those two people who were running for re-election, um, and and uh, Purdue and, and uh, Leffler, and you looked at this and you thought, why did I even come? You know, and, and they should have known better, of course, because uh, Trump only talks about himself. He only thinks about himself. But still, you know, if, if Trump was popular, it would be good for them, at least as a photo opportunity, to be seen on the stage with him. Well, he made it all about himself. And so, and, and worse than that, to answer your question specifically, Ryan, uh, he repeated what he had said for days, weeks that the, the election is rigged, and he was telling voters, including Republican voters in Georgia, that the, the election is rigged. Well, if it's rigged and you're a Republican voter, then why bother voting? Right? And so I think uh, his, his impact was, was in some ways catastrophic uh, on, on the, Demo uh, the Republican Party, uh, which I think in some ways they got what they deserved with this because they backed him. Um, and and, uh, and now they're they're reaping what they sow, as they say. And, uh, and the, you know, the impact of that is, that, of course, to, to give control of the Senate back to the Democrats at this point, who now have run the table remarkably and control the House, the Senate, and the White House. And Mitch McConnell is no longer going to be the, the leader of, of the United States Senate. Even Lindsey Graham, if you watched him a couple of nights ago, um, when they were when they were going through the uh, process of counting the ballots, and you know people were going to get up and object. Even Lindsey Graham got up and finally did his. After he tried to save face for Donald Trump, he finally said, "That's it. I washed my hands. You know, I'm, I'm done with them too." And uh, and that's the price they're paying at this point. And and it all goes back to one person. It was Trump. Trump is the reason the party got big and powerful. And then Trump is the reason the party imploded, as it is doing right now. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking once again with uh, 
one of our favorite people to have on the public morality, political commentator Joe Tuman. And Joe, before we go any further, because we have much more to talk about, um, you have to give us an update on your grandson, August, because as I recall, he got his first national publicity on the public morality. So how's he doing? <laughs> he's turning three in about two months. Um, he's, he's extremely talkative. I don't know where he gets that from. <laughs> and and he's, he's, uh, he's doing just fine. Thank you for asking. He's the, he's the love of my life, absolutely. The reason I want to get up in the morning. Now, is, now is, Joe, I hate, I hate to tell you this, but you do realize he was a month old the first time you were on the public morality. It goes fast. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but thank you for asking. That's very kind. Uh-huh. Uh, when you... Um, you know, now you, you've touched on this. Now I want to I want to come back to it. You know, uh, now that President Elect Biden has what every president has had the first time they're elected in the, in the last thirty two years. I don't know if you realize this, but his party has majorities of of both chambers, um, albeit slim. Yeah. E- explain um, to our listeners how that impacts his presidency, especially in the. First eighteen months, I'm allowing for six months before the midterms for the everyone to scatter. But well, sure, that's it, it's a great question, and and so the 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 quick answer on this is uh, that that being in control of both uh, chambers, both houses of of Congress, means that uh, uh, for example, this desire in the in the House uh, House of Representatives to increase the dollar amount given to people who've lost their jobs in the middle of the pandemic. Um, you know, $600 is not going to get you through to the end of the month, even, you know, for most people. Um, and, and there was this drive to, to make it $1,200 instead. Uh, and that was blocked by Mitch McConnell. Well, that means now that, that that's going to be a possibility. And I don't think that Chuck Schumer is going to be the new leader of the Senate is just going to railroad things through. He's, you know, it is, as you said, it's, it's a modest majority uh, with, with uh, uh, Vice President Harris, you know, casting the deciding vote to break ties. Um, but that means that they, there's still going to have to be some negotiation. And, and thankfully, one of the good things about the United States Senate is that there are people there who are willing to work with people on the other side. And uh, part of the advantage of having longer terms of office in the United States Senate is that people working next to each other eventually develop friendships and relationships, and that's the, that's the stuff that makes people able to work with one, one another. Um, they get past their their animus and their hostility that you know a Republican will never talk to a Democrat and vice versa. They're just people, and they have to work with each other, and and they will, I think, uh, going forward. It'll, you know, but as I said, it, the Democratic majority, if you want to call it that, uh, in the Senate won't be able to mandate. They're still going to have to negotiate, but they're they're in the dominant position without question. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, staying on that thread, it, it has become the norm uh, in, in in recent decades that nothing gets done in Congress unless the president. Um, his party has control of both chambers of, of, of Congress. And given the fact that political parties were not even part of what the founders were thinking when the Constitution was ratified, can, yeah. any, can anything be done, in your view, to minimize um, the obstruction that, in my view, has been normalized in our 21st century context? 
Oh, it, it's 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 unbelievable. It's uh, all all the rule changes and 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 always justifying the rule changes to benefit yourself by claiming that the other side did it too. Um, and and uh, it has been very damaging. But you know, it's also worth remembering though, since we're considering the relevance of the parties, also in the context of, of the role of Congress. Um, you know, the founders were still looking, as you know, for a balance of powers uh, so that, that uh, the legislative branch, which was on a more regular basis sort of subject to, to the vote of the people, is balanced against the, the executive branch, the presidency, and of course you have the judicial branch as well, which is, is supposed to be apolitical and doesn't stand for office, and they get life tenure when they're on there uh, in their positions. Um in that context, if we think beyond the parties, but actually think about the structure of government, the whole point of this was to encourage working together, that no one entity would dominate and dictate to others. Now, that hasn't always been that way for the last couple of years with this president. Um, and I think his behavior, going back to your question about political parties, has certainly emboldened the Republican Party um, to the point where you know, people like uh, uh, Senator Cruz or Senator Hawley, who should know better, um, sort of got greedy and, and kind of looked at the opportunities for them of a presidential base of 75 or whatever million voters, thinking, thinking that they could get those the next time around. And their behavior recently in terms of enabling Trump by perpetuating his lies about the, the, the November election is, is evidence of this. And uh, and that's something we're going to have to deal with. And and people like that, frankly, I know we haven't talked yet about the insurrection, the, what happened on Wednesday, but frankly, their behavior in all of this, um, particularly on behalf of the Republican Party, contributed to what happened. And it was it was not the sole responsibility of, of, of these people, but they certainly, by enabling Trump's lies, encouraged the terrible thing that's happened to this country. And, and uh, frankly, I think those guys should resign. There's not a chance that they're going to win uh, uh, anything in 2024. The, the negative advertising on them will write itself for what they did. I'm, I'm not quite sure the actual numbers, and you sort of alluded to it earlier. But uh, at least in, in my lifetime, uh, this is the first election that, that, that I felt like as many people voted against President Trump as as voted for, as voted for Joe Biden, and maybe higher. Yeah. Given that, and I don't know if that's true or not. But that's just sort of my hypothesis. But given that, uh, if you were giving counsel to the Democratic Party, what do they need to do? Because because we know traditionally, midterm elections. De- uh, decrease, especially by the party in power. So what do they need to do yeah. if they want to expand those numbers in the Senate? Well, you have to look at and, and see which seats, of course, are, are open and then what states we're talking about. But I, I think uh, generally for, from the Democratic side, the I think the voting issue uh, for, for voters in any state is still the pandemic. It's about the, the, the federal response to this. Um, you know, Trump will get some credit, I guess, for shutting China off from being able to take airplane rides over from China to the United States. You know, he, he was a little late to the party on that, but he did do that. And he'll get some credit for 
um, speeding up the time to make vaccines available. That's all nice. But the distribution of vaccines, the carrying out of this to vaccinate uh, a, a sizable population, they, you know, they've left that to the states, which were completely underprepared for this and, and uh, require federal guidance, particularly on, on the distribution level. And uh, so my answer to your question is to be more brief. I'm sorry. Um, I think that's job one for Biden and, and for the administration is to be dealing with that immediately and uh, showing the public that they can have some calm restored. Mr. Trump has, has barely talked about the COVID virus. In that little nonsensical tape he made yesterday, under threat of whatever, um, when he finally had to comment on the insurrection, uh, he briefly mentioned you know, that, that people had, had died because of the COVID virus, and that was sad. And, and you know, how often have we heard him say that? He's, he rarely, if ever, talks about it. But Joe Biden talks about it all the time, and that's part of the reason he got elected. People weren't just making choices when they voted for Biden over Trump from places like Georgia um, because, uh, you know, they liked Biden more. They, they're voting that way because Biden was talking about the thing they were most afraid of and that they, they, they were hoping somebody would deal with. And Trump has shown little to no to zero interest in this topic uh, for quite some time. It, it's part of the reason that people voted against him. So, so that's my answer. I think that, that one of the ways that, that you can enlarge the Senate, uh, the share of, of uh, senators in the, in the United States Senate who are Democrat, is to, to make not just the president, but the president as part of the Democratic brand, uh, a focus on dealing with this pandemic and getting it out of the way, because there are plenty of conservatives, including some of those people who were demonstrating earlier this week, who would love to be told they don't have to wear masks anymore, they don't have to wash their hands anymore, uh, they can eat inside a restaurant if they want to. That's the sort of stuff they're waiting to hear. And if it's a Democratic Party that delivers that, they'll go for it. Likewise, if it's a Democratic Party that gets people out of work, uh, checks for, for 1200 or 1600 and now they're talking about $2,000. i am not, not sure if that'll happen or not, but um, that's going to give a lot of those people hope. And at come election time, they're going to remember which party was encouraging doing that and which party was sitting on their hands saying, no, that's too much money. And that, you know, that, that speaks for itself. So it's, it's, it's a pandemic. It's dealing with the COVID virus in, in all of its different machinations. Explain, if you would, to, to, to our listeners why many feel that the actions uh, of those 12 uh, Republican senators you mentioned, um, Senator Cruz and Senator Howley uh, by name, but um, because they were prepared to challenge the reelection, the certification, I should say, of, 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 of yeah. uh, President-elect Biden, uh, why did many view those actions as seditious? Explain that, please. As seditious? Yes. Well, uh, uh, I think the, the, this begins first by identifying the insurrection itself. And and uh, part of the reason, not part of the reason, the sole reason that, that groups um, like the, the group that calls itself the, the Proud Boys or any of a number of neo-Nazi groups, American neo-Nazi groups or white supremacist groups, um, got involved with this was they were already living and communicating within an ecosystem where, where they repeated their own lies to one another. And, and in Donald Trump, they got somebody who, who was way better at lying than they were. 
And uh, so, uh, you know, this 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 uh, effort at, at an insurrection, which is, a, you know, a, and it turns out to be a violent challenge to the lawful authority of a central government, which is what happened Wednesday, began with this perpetuation of lies uh, by these different groups. And uh, Trump, I'm, I'm not sure if he's, you know, was, was smart enough to know that he could manipulate these people to do what he wanted, or it, it was just a bad confluence of, of him wishing for that result and then taking him up on the offer. But, uh, you know, the end result of this was something terrible, uh, an assault to our, you know, it wasn't just a, a building that was assaulted. It was, uh, it was, it was the image of the United States, the strongest democracy, the best example of a democracy. That's how we, we label ourselves uh, on the planet. And, you know, what are other countries that we've been lecturing for a long time to think of this, uh, think of us after what happened? It's, it's, it's unimaginable, the damage that's been done. And it's going to take more than Joe Biden to fix that, frankly. It's, it's going to be years before uh, the mess of, of this, the detritus of this left behind of all the problems uh, goes away. I'm not sure if I answered your question. No. I may have drifted. Joe, on, Joe, you always answer my questions. That, that's why we keep having, <laughs> that's why we keep having you back. You, 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 in, in, in the adorable photos you post of August. That's why we keep having you back. Um, uh, but just, but, but given your last answer, uh, can um, the Republican Party in its present state, uh, because of January six? Uh, can it can it continue in its present state, or do you see it do you see it sort of fracturing? I see it fracturing definitely. Um, but you know, I have to tell you, I, I grew up in in uh, San Joaquin Valley, which is a very conservative. It's an agricultural belt, if you like, in California, Central California. Um, very conservative. My parents were, you know, two of, of 11 whole Democrats in our town of about 10,000 people. <laughs> and so I, I grew up knowing more children of more Republicans than I did, you know, finding anybody who's had the same political tendencies as my parents. And these all grew up to be fine people. Some of them I knew ran for office. And they're all good people. And I don't automatically, and I don't think anyone else should either, automatically assume that because someone is a member of a political party that, they buy into all the beliefs of that and the rest of it. And so um, I'd like to think that the Republican Party can rebuild. It was originally, as you know, the party of Lincoln. The point, it was an abolitionist party designed originally to, to uh, eliminate slavery. To, and and uh, over uh, the course of more than a century, it went where the voters were, just like the Democratic Party did. The Democrats settled and concentrate in cities. And Republicans typically have, have uh, sheltered or, or migrated to rural areas. And so that geography in some ways and those populations dictate what the parties become. So this party right now, which for a long time, the Republicans, has been a party about law and order, about balanced budgets and not being wasteful with money and lowering taxes, all those sorts of things, and building a strong economy. Those were And, and the religious aspect of this as well. Um, uh, you know, very pro-Christian and the like, um, is is now associated uh, with a president who will uh, replace Richard Nixon historically as as you know uh, someone uh, suffering this label of of 
of being a terrible president and producing on this past week a, uh, a day of infamy, a shame. Um, they're they're tagged with that, and you know they could have avoided this, frankly, if they had the courage to do what Mitt Romney chastised them about earlier this week. If they just told Trump's base the truth about the fact that Biden had won the election fair and square in November, they could have saved themselves a world of trouble. But now, just as President Trump is labeled a liar, um, Republicans will be associated with that big lie as well. You tell a lie often enough, it eventually becomes the truth. That was what Joseph Goebbels taught Adolf Hitler. And uh, I don't mean to uh, to go too far with, with in criticizing Senator Cruz, but he was somebody who was by by willing being willing to stand up and challenge these election results um, was perpetuating a lie, and he knew it was a lie. They all knew it was a lie, and it became the truth for Trump's base, for those people who voted for him, and also for those same people who assaulted the state, the, the federal capital, the Capitol building. And they have to answer for that, and, and they will the next time they run for election, because anybody running against Cruz or Holling or any of the others uh, that you mentioned, we haven't named, um, it's not going to be that hard to, to come up with the arguments or the negative advertising against those guys. You just show what their, vote, what their votes were going to be and or what they were saying about the president's lies, and you show the video of the assault on the, on the Capitol. And Cruz was asked today in an interview, do you feel responsible for what happened? And he takes about five seconds to answer this, and he's really nervous. And then finally he says, no, I'm not responsible. Well, that sounds like Donald Trump talking again. And uh, voters aren't going to forget that. And, and so in that sense, I do think this is a party, a political party in crisis. It doesn't, I don't think it deserves to or I won't say it doesn't deserve to, I'll just say I don't think it wants to be associated with Mr. Trump anymore. Um, I think they want to get as far away from him as possible. And uh, if they want to have any hope of some midterm surprises, and you know what, the House of Representatives might be in play in, in, the, in two years. It happens. We make these corrections, and voters typically do that because they want there to be a balance of powers. Given the fact that the Dems right now control all three uh, you know the, the executive and both houses in the in the Congress. Yeah, I can per- perfectly see Republican voters looking for an opportunity to vote for a Republican in the House instead of a Democrat. But you have to, in order to get them to do that, you have to turn them out. There are a lot of people who probably are turned off by elections after this, and you also have to assure them that the lies that were perpetuated before won't be repeated. Uh, they have they have some some cleaning up to do where that's concerned. Staying on this, and we'll we'll, we'll switch, but staying on this for just a moment, you know, one, in my view, one of the hallmarks of a republic is that there comes a point within our civic virtue that if if I, you know, I support Joe Tooman. I actually did support Joe Tooman a long time ago, but that's another story. But (laughs) but, But I support Joe Tooman, but there comes a point if Joe Tooman says something, you know, as a citizen, you know, or, or as a fellow legislator, we're in the same party. There has to be a point that I'm unwilling to go. You know, just because Joe Toon yeah. said it can't be enough. And isn't that a danger on how, Repu- how Republic- Republican small R forms of government implode by the, the unwillingness to do that? 
Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I think in the, in the case of, uh, if we just stay on the two-week name, uh, Holling and, and uh, Cruz, you know, I, I, I'm not defending them, believe me, at all in this. I think uh, they got big eyes when when they saw and <laughs> reminded how much Trump won, even though he lost that race. And, and they said to themselves, oh, we're a minority party, but if we, if we start grabbing that kind of vote total, we can be the majority party. And, of course... Both of these guys, along with some others, were naive enough to think they could inherit um, that base uh, from Trump. And, of course, that's based on the assumption that Trump is gone, and I don't think that Trump thinks that way. So a lot of this was, my mother used to say, uh, I, would, I would get in trouble sometimes when I was a kid and went to restaurants, and I'd, I'd order something that was way too much food. And my mother would say, order with your stomach, not with your eyes. Right? In other words, don't order food you can't eat. And this is what happened with Cruz and Holly. They, they 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 looked at this and they said, "We can inherit that. Let's let's back the Trump up on this and perpetuate the lie, and then we'll grab those seventy five million. Well, good luck. Not going to happen now. You're part of the big lie. And they should have ordered with their eyes. Pardon me, their stomach, <laughs> not with their eyes. My mom's going to be mad at me now. <laughs> We've talked a lot about Republicans, and, we're, and we haven't gotten to the insurrection yet. But we've talked a lot about Republicans. But but what uh, what are the dangers lurking for the Democratic Party on the horizon? Well, as I, I said, I think uh, it is natural in in our history politically for there to be midterm uh, corrections where where people will say let's uh, let's not give one party all all of it. So I would not be surprised to see uh, more more seats in the House taken by Republicans. Um, best way for the Democrats to avoid that on top of uh, insulating themselves by pursuing, you know, vigorously pursuing a COVID strategy and backing the president when he wants to, to, to move on this stuff. The other thing they can do, I think, is uh, uh, continue for the Democrats to support uh, financial help for people who've lost jobs, and, uh, uh, you know, try and, 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 and put people back on their feet uh, where this is concerned. Um, I expect uh, on the Democratic, or I'm sorry, we're talking about Republicans, right? No, Democrats. Um, <laughs> oh. Well, I, I, I think just to, to, to finish out the point on, on, on this, um, it, it's still quite possible uh, that there will be gains made on the other side. It, it, it's, it's not unusual. And remember, there were 75 million people who voted for Donald Trump. Uh, I don't know how many of them are still going to want to support him after what happened this week. Um, because some, you know, the, the, the people who are really uh, Trump people, the ones who are marching and, and damaging the building, those people are sort of in their own universe. Um, but I'm talking about moderate Republicans who just kind of like Trump because during his era, the stock market might have gotten gone up, or they may have appreciated some of the tax changes that he made. Um, but other than that, they're not hugely invested in this. And um, the question is, are they going to want to go uh, for Republicans, or would they sit out the next election if, if they're not happy with either party? Uh, you sort of touched on this already, but uh, we have to, we're going to talk specifically about it. Is there any way... Uh, to describe the melee that occurred on Capitol Hill uh, this week, other than a failed insurrection to disrupt American democracy. Yeah, I, 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 I think that's 
it's it's accurate. Um, I'm not sure if it well it, it failed in the sense that they didn't succeed in toppling the government. Um, it succeeded in the sense um, that it, it for the moment disrupted the counting of the electoral college votes, which I think was Mr. Trump's initial ambition in this. Um, and boy, he sure didn't think that through, obviously. Uh, and I think the the uh, the other and longer term damage is uh, how this new de- debacle. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. Is laid is, is is firmly to be laid at Trump's feet on this. I mean, he was the one that set this up. He was the one who told the Proud Boys before, you know, back off and or stand down, but be ready, right? Meaning, I'm going to use you eventually. Uh, Trump was the one who made. Uh, in the state of Michigan, that tweet um, to undercut the governor's authority there, Gretchen, uh, Gretchen's authority, um, that uh, uh, masks should be worn. When, when he tweeted out, liberate Michigan, what the hell does that mean? Let's remember it was those same Proud Boys that, that hatched this numbskull scheme to kidnap the governor, to trial her, try her, rather, in like a kangaroo court, and then execute her. And thankfully, the FBI intervened and, and arrested a bunch of them and, and protected her. But, uh, you know, it's amazing that if that happened, the president said very little about it. And senators like the ones we've been talking about or members of the House and the Republican Party knew that those things have, had happened before. And they, they didn't imagine that it could happen here in Washington, D.C. as well with this group. But, you know, it's a huge it's a huge uh, uh, screw up. Uh, not and not just in the Congress, also in our law enforcement community as well. Um, we should have expected this, frankly. It was it was staring at us all the time, and it could happen again, frankly. Well, Joe, you you sort of touched on this as well, but but um, you you talked about how Senator Hawley, um, and I'm assuming given given their educational background, and Senator Cruz, you know, knew better. Um, we had elections verified. At the state level, we had decisions rendered by more than 100 state and federal judges appointed by Democrats and Republicans, including the Supreme, oh, yeah. including Supreme Court, that said yeah. there was no election malfeasance. But yet, um, we've never had a conspiracy theory, not even the Kennedy assassination conspiracy theory, that had a shelf life that so threatened our democracy. I agree. That, I think that's true. The, the, maybe the difference, Byron, is uh, we've also never had a president like Trump. And, and uh, he, it, it's interesting that he, he self-identifies as this uh, stable genius or something like that. I, I, I don't know that I would call him either a stable or a genius, but he is clever um, for what that's worth. And, and uh, he has uh, been a master of... Uh, the ability to self-promote, no question. And and we know he is, I don't mean to psychoanalyze him, but I will. He's a sociopath. He's pathological. Um, he, is, he is a perpetual liar. In fact, when you want to figure out what he actually means is the truth, you just assume it's the opposite of what he's saying because he lies all the time. And so for somebody like Mr. Trump, I mean, think of, have we ever had a president who does this? Right? I mean, maybe Richard Nixon would be the closest, but even Nixon told the truth about some things as well, and uh, and, and was a, a, a bad president and a bad man. But you know, Trump is in a category by himself, and and so to your question, I 
I don't think we've ever had anybody uh, like Trump before, and, and I don't think that these these uh, conspiracy theories or, or, or fake stories um, would ever have happened with other presidents. Um, Trump used every opportunity whenever a microphone was put in front of him or he was taping something or he was tweeting every opportunity to to uh, demean and besmirch and denigrate uh, the election uh, in November, uh, even before it happened, uh, by saying, if I lose, it'll be because they, they cheated. And then after he lost, uh, well, they didn't win, I won. They cheated and he, he must have had a daily dose of that, you know, three or four times a day since November. Um, he perpetu- I mean, he understood the, the the point I was making about with uh, Goebbels and, and, and Hitler and, and the uh, you know, the Nazis' rhetoric to try and, and justify the mass murder of millions of innocent Jews in the Second World War. If you tell a lie often enough, eventually it becomes the truth, and that's what happened here. We've never had a president um, with those skills, which I don't admire, by the way, and a, and a ruthless willingness to use them the way he did. You, you mentioned that's, Richard, that's unique. You mentioned Richard Nixon. Um, one could, you could make the argument in 1960, Richard Nixon had a, 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 a better case to suggest that um, the election was stolen from him than, than, uh, than this president, but yet he chose not to go down this road. Yeah, there were there were certainly allegations in in 1960 about uh, um, some malfeasance on the part of Democrats. Uh, uh, I mean, that's something that Kennedy lived with, and Kennedy Kennedy was also a unique kind of candidate. The, the good-looking guy, great public speaker, um, probably a skirt chaser as well. If you believe the rumors about Marilyn Monroe and the rest of it, uh, and probably somebody like Trump who got away with a lot. Um, but I think I don't want to make the, the comparison to Trump too much because, uh, you know, Kennedy was also an intellectual. He was well read. He wrote books as well as read them and, and uh, was a very smart person and, and actively involved uh, in the country. Mr. Trump has been mostly about himself. And that's where I think the difference is. On, on, on that note, Joe, did, did his uh, two minute uh, speech where he's. I, I'm assuming he acknowledged that Joe Biden won the election. Does that make a difference at all in your mind? Um, for Trump, no. In fact, uh, I, I think that he may have made it worse for himself when he did that. Uh, you know, the, the, the speech was taped. Uh, you and I have both been in, in watching politics long enough to know the difference between when someone's reading the speech and someone's actually speaking from the heart. Um his tone was flat. Uh, he clearly was forced into saying the things that he, he had to say. Um, and it was a remarkable, uh, it showed remarkable, that's, you know, dull, um, for him to blame initially the demonstrators. The, 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 let's call them what they were. I won't call them demonstrators. They were domestic terrorists. He blamed them for their violence and said they'd be held to account. Well, if I was one of the poor boys or I was one of those chuckleheads who thought it was a good idea to do to the state capital, the federal capital, what um, what they did, I'd be pretty mad at Trump because Trump is making it sound like they did this. And it was breathtaking in that little two-minute segment to see that he took no responsibility for it himself when clearly his words incited their behavior, just like his son's words did right after he was done speaking and Rudy Giuliani as well when he said, let's do trial by combat. 
And, you know, everybody knew this was coming. It's, it's, and, and Trump yesterday said nothing about this. To me, now I'm just speaking as an, a private citizen, that was the moment where I felt for myself he needed to be out of the office at this point. It doesn't matter if it's going to happen in 14 days. He's already shown how much uh, reckless damage he can do uh, in a couple of hours. I wouldn't, I wouldn't leave him the keys to anything at this point. And you know what? Nancy Pelosi feels that way, too, which is why, as you and I are speaking now, uh, I just turned off the two before you called. Um, they've drafted at least one article of impeachment, and they've got several more. And Pelosi is looking to have a conversation with the vice president today, saying, if you don't invoke the 25th, we will take this to the floor and start counting votes, because we're going to force the president to resign. And this is becoming, I think, uh, very quickly, similar to the end of Watergate, where Nixon was eventually forced to resign when it was obvious that nobody was going to support him anymore. And uh, rather than be impeached and removed and then charged, um, he resigned. I suspect Mr. Trump will be forced into this as well. Well, this is the first week of 2021, and uh, I have a sneaking suspicion at some point during the year of 2021, we're going to have Joe Tooman back. I want you to, in the meantime, though, I want you to practice and get, get I want you to practice with August and get him ready because we're going to start, we're going to put you to the side and just start having him on and get his analysis. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> Well, my friend, Joe Tooman, thank you so much uh, for joining thank us today you. on The always, Public Morality. Uh, yeah, always good to talk to you. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at the public morality, I'm Byron Williams.